Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. You want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles. We are in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. So in Hebrews chapter 10, really, um, it could be divided up into about five sections. And uh, verses 1 through 4, um, I, I, I kind of came up with some phrases, kind of the theme of that particular section of Scripture. In verses 1 through 4, I put once versus repetitive. Uh, verses 5 through 10, uh, volitional, if you know what that means, it's like voluntary, versus involuntary. Verses 11 through 18, seated versus standing. And verses 19 through 25, confidence versus fear. And then finally, verses 26 through 39, endurance versus drawing back. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The sacrifices under the old covenant were imperfect, and uh, they were only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image. Um, this past year, uh, among other things, I was diagnosed with acid reflux. And I don't know if, you've, if any of you have ever experienced that, but uh, uh, when, it's, when it's flared up, it can feel like you're having a heart attack. I mean, it's terrible. Um, it's very uncomfortable. Well, um, I went to a doctor, and uh, the doctor diagnosed it or told me that's what it was and uh, gave me a prescription for a proton pump inhibitor. Fancy word for, uh, uh, well, I've taken Prilosec. So anyways, um, you medical people know exactly all about it. I was, at first on my notes, I was like, ion pump inhibitor. And wait a minute, ion pump, wait a minute. I know, I had to Google it. So it's a proton pump inhibitor. But you know, I take that every day. And uh, I know I have not been cured of acid reflux because I have to keep taking uh, the medicine to keep the symptoms from reappearing. And just like that, under the Old Covenant, the Hebrews knew that their sin was not cured. It wasn't taken away because they had to keep repeating the sacrifices over and over and over again. The Bible says that the sacrifices under the Old Covenant couldn't take away sins, nor could they even remove the consciousness of sins. Because you were reminded every time, oh, that's right, I've got to offer a sin offering to the Lord because I'm sinful. And so it was a reminder. Every time you brought your sacrifice, uh, sacrificial animal to the priest, you were reminded that your sins were still present. I don't know how many of you ever heard that phrase, practice makes perfect. You know, and it's true for musical instruments. It's true for sports. It's true. You know, practice makes perfect. That's the principle. The more you do it, the better. You... That's not true when it comes to the old covenant. Practice didn't make perfect. Practice just reminded you that you were a sinner. So under the old covenant, uh, the repetition was just a reminder that the old covenant was insufficient to take away your sins. Verse 5, Therefore, 
When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, uh, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Some people have a distorted view of God the Father uh, in the Old Testament. They have this view that God is this angry ogre. You know, he's just this angry person who loves bloodshed. And then they say, well, and then they look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus is the loving son who appeases his angry father on our behalf. And that's a distortion of the truth. God doesn't take pleasure in death and bloodshed. In fact, even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 33, 11, it says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Understand this. It was the Father's will to save us. That's why we read in, in John 3, 19, uh, 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the Father's plan to save us. That's the great love of God. That's the God of the Old Testament. It was His plan to save us from our sins. It was Jesus who executed the Father's plan for us. And He did it willingly. That quote in verses 5 through 7 that we read, it's actually taken from Psalm 40, verse 6 uh, and through 8. Let me read it out of Psalm 40 because there's a little bit difference in there. Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. In Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, the phrase, My ears you have opened, that is referring back to Exodus chapter 21. Back in Exodus, you know, you, you go start reading through the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. The children of Israel, they're gathered around Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 20, Moses ascends Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21, God starts giving Moses various laws and ordinances for the children of Israel to live by. And the first law he gives Moses in Exodus 21 is the law concerning servants. According to Exodus chapter 21, a Hebrew, a Jewish person, could become an indentured servant to a fellow Hebrew. Probably financial. There's a financial issue. You know, you couldn't make, pay your debt or whatever. Then you would become a servant to a fellow Hebrew. But you could only serve him for six years. In the seventh year, he would, you'd be released from your servitude and you'd be allowed to go free. Now, if the servant was married at the beginning of that six-year period, 
his wife, at the end of that six-year period, his wife would be freed with him. Um, If his servant was unmarried at the beginning of the six years, well, then he'd just be freed by himself. However, if the master gave the wife, or gave, excuse me, if the master gave the servant a wife during that six-year period, and then that seventh year rolls around where the, the servant was free to go, in the seventh year, he would be freed, but his wife and any children that they had from their union, from their marriage, born to them, would belong to the master. Now, if the servant really, really loved his wife and really, really didn't want to leave without her, he could choose to become what was known as a bond servant to his master. And what he would do to make that decision final, the servant would go stand by a post with his ear and the master would take an awl and drive the awl through the lobe of the person's ear of the servant's ear, piercing it, and then that would signify that that person was now a bondservant to the master and didn't want to leave the master's house. And then he would be allowed, you know, then he would stay, stay married, of course. Well, the father gave a bride, the church, to his servant, Jesus Christ. And his servant, Jesus Christ, loves his bride and didn't want to leave earth without his bride, so he willingly had his hands and his feet pierced to a wooden cross. And he's returning to take his bride home to the place that he's preparing for her. What a beautiful picture that is of Jesus willingly giving himself as a sacrifice. You know, in verse 5 we read, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And then, of course, down in verse 7, it says, In the volume of the book it is written of me. Now, earlier in verse 1, we read that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. And then in verse 5, we start reading about the body that God had prepared for Jesus the Son to inhabit. That word for body is the Greek word soma. And it refers, among many other things, it refers to a physical body the physical body of Jesus Christ. But get this, it also means that which casts a shadow as distinguished from the shadow itself. What a cool definition. That body, Jesus Christ, is, the, is what's cast the shadow. The shadow of the good things to come. All these things under the old covenant was a shadow, and Jesus' body, His physical body, was what cast that shadow. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures, for in them you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He said that in John 5.39. In the volume of the book it is written of me. You know, God's Word is, I mean, it's truly amazing. It's so deep, and it's so intricate, that scholars, and I don't know if you know who Chuck Missler is, but very intelligent men like Chuck Missler, they can dig deep in and they can uncover things that are like hidden. I mean, they're, they're just amazing things that they pull out of the Bible and go, wow, I never saw that before. That is so awesome. Uh, and so a person like that, they can never run out of things to discover in God's Word. That's how deep it is. That's how how intricate the Word of God is. And yet, It's also so simple that even the youngest of children can understand from the Scriptures that Jesus loves them. There's no other book like that. 
Well, the people that really love to dig into the scriptures and love to discover, uh, discover all the obscure details that are f- hidden in the Bible, uh, you know, they can get so involved in that and so digging so deep into it that it's possible to lose sight of the whole purpose of the scriptures, and that is to reveal Jesus. I, I've got one of Chuck Missler's books called Hidden Codes from the Bible, and, and uh, Chuck Missler was a cryptologist and very intelligent guy, and he digs in there and talks about all these hidden codes in the Bible. And, and it's, if, if you're into that kind of stuff, it's a very fascinating book to read. But even in that book, he says, you know, you can take this to the wrong extreme. You can get so caught up in all these little hidden things and, you know, the, the nuances and all that stuff that you lose sight of what the Scriptures is. And the Scriptures is a revelation of Jesus Christ to you and I. So don't lose that, that. Don't lose the forest for the trees, so to speak. Well, in verse 10 it says, By that will, speaking of God the Father's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So while the animal sacrifices were repeated year after year under the old covenant, Jesus ushers in the new covenant whereby the sacrifice for sin was completed once for all. So repetition versus once. And while there was no choice on the part of the animal being sacrificed, Jesus willingly submitted himself to his Father's will. Willingly because he loves you and I. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is no, excuse me, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So under the old covenant, the priests stood in the tabernacle continually offering the same sacrifices year in and year out. And the reason why they stood was because their work was never finished. But Jesus our high priest, offered himself once for all time, and now he's seated at the right hand of God because his work is finished. And he's seated, the Bible says here, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. That's kind of an interesting term. But this is referring to the custom of conquerors. When they would conquer an an enemy, they would put their feet on the necks of the enemy as as a symbol of their enemies being under subjection to them. Well, who are Jesus' enemies? Well, we know, one, definitely Satan, Lucifer, and the fallen angels, but also the wicked of this earth who reject him as their Savior. And so Jesus finished his work on the cross. Now he's seated, reigning in heaven, and he's waiting until all things are made subject to him. Right now, all things are not subject to him. Philippians 2.9 says this, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
there is a time coming when ev- for every person that ever was created that they will have a time when they're going to bow the knee before Jesus Christ as he's seated on the throne. No one will escape that. Everyone ever created will come to that day where they will have to bow before Jesus. Now for some, it's going to be a time of great joy. Hopefully for all of us here, it's going to be a time of great joy. Why? Because we willingly and cheerfully submitted ourselves under his authority already during our lives. So when, we, when it's time to do that, it's just like, yeah, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. I submit myself to you. Why? Because we've already done that in our lives, during our lives now. But for others, it's going to be a time of great, free, great fear and dread. Why? Because they refused to submit themselves under his authority during their lives. And yet at one time, they're going to have to do that. You know, the fascinating thing to me is that Almighty God, I mean, God who created everything, God who has, holds the world, I mean, holds the universe in his hands, who controls everything. He even controls your breaths. You know, how long you're going to live, your heartbeats. He controls everything, and yet he leaves the choice up to the individual whether they want to submit themselves to God or not. He, he, leaves, he gives you that free choice to do that. The individual has the choice to, whether they will submit themselves to Jesus Christ or not during their lifetime. However, there's always a consequence for choices, and there will be a consequence for that choice if they choose not to. So, while the multitudes of animals were sacrificed under the Old Covenant, and believe me, there was multitudes of animals that were sacrificed yearly, daily, you know, down through the ages under the Old Covenant, none of them took away sins, took away man's sins. But Jesus' one sacrifice of himself, it says here, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And then in verse 10, we've been told that we have been sanctified. And that word sanctified, by the way, is purified and set apart to God once and for all. But yet here in verse 14, we are being sanctified. So we have been sanctified, and we're being sanctified. Well, being sanctified speaks of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in your and my life. Verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. You see, under the old covenant, it had to do with external commandments, right? Commandments written on stone tablets, basically. The new covenant has to do with an inner transformation of the heart, something that the old covenant could never do. And that's where God changes our hearts to desire to do his will. You become a born-again believer, and now you start thinking about, what does God want me to do? And, and we, you know, now that now we just don't go rush headlong into sin, now, now it's like we, there's this conviction all of a sudden. We're, we're thinking about God's law. We're thinking about God's will. In verse 17, he adds, then, uh, then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds... I will remember no more. And then verse 18, now where there is no remission, excuse me, where there is remission of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Remission, that's not a word that we use too often, but it basically means forgiveness. So not only does God forgive us of our sins, but he chooses to not remember them. 
It's not that God can't remember. It's that He chooses not to remember your and my sins. They're gone. They're taken away by that one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that's why He's seated and not standing, because His work is finished. And so now there's, there's no offering needed anymore for sin, because He did it that once and for all, once time. And then now that takes us to the therefore here in verse 19. Therefore, brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. You know, the old covenant, it never brought joy. It only brought fear. Because you were constantly reminded that your sins remained. But now under the new covenant, fear is replaced with confidence and full assurance. And as we're reading through those verses, of course, it's highly symbolic of the Jewish, you know, especially the Jewish reader would pick up on it right away. It's about the, the, the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where the mercy seat was. Now, under the old covenant, no one could enter the Holy of Holies except for the high priest, and only the high priest. And the high priest never entered boldly. The high priest himself, he was a sinner. He was a fallible person. He entered timidly with fear and great reverence and trembling. But under the new covenant, the Bible tells you and I that we can enter Boldly. What does that mean? That means we can enter with cheerful confidence by the blood of Jesus. And the Bible says here, a new and living way. That new and living way, what it literally refers to is a newly killed sacrifice. I don't want to gross some of you out, and I know it might, but it's when the blood is still warm and is still fluid. That's what it actually is referring to, a new and living way. You see, if the blood of the victim was cold and coagulated, it was no longer useful for the sacrifice. Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and his uh, shed blood is still fresh, and it's still able to cleanse us from our sins. And so, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So what's the requirement for you and I to draw near? It's just truthfulness. Truthfulness. Honesty about our sinful condition and our need for a Savior. It doesn't say draw near with a perfect heart. Because we can't have a perfect heart apart from Him. So we just draw with an honest heart. Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. We're, We're entering with truthfulness. Honesty about our sinful condition and our need for our Savior. And faith in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, is promi- he who promised is faithful. And you know what the problem is? Is when you and I fall into sin, we become discouraged. We waver in our faith. And what do we tend to do? We tend to stay away. 
We don't, we don't want to go into the Lord's presence because we feel guilty. We, we feel, we, we know we've blown it. And yet James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Don't waver from your confidence in Jesus Christ because he is faithful. I heard many times I've, I've approached the throne because I've been unfaithful. And it's a, it's a, it's the temptation is to stay away. I don't want to approach the throne because I've been unfaithful. I've, I've failed the Lord one more time. And that's the opposite we should be doing. We should be entering because it's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on His faithfulness. And so as that you and I under that new covenant, man, we can boldly approach the throne of grace because it's not dependent upon us. And then he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. When you and I waver from the truth of Christ's finished work on the cross, when we drift away from the Lord, we also tend to stay away from the fellowship. It's a vicious cycle. It just, it just compounds the problems over and over again. We need fellowship. We need to hold fast our confidence in Jesus Christ, and we need to draw near to Him. That's what we need to do. And then we really need to consider one another. Do you consider everybody else here? We need to be thinking about one another, coming to church not seeking to receive, but seeking to stir up one another to love and good works. And as you and I see the day approaching... What day is he talking about? The day of Christ's return for his church. How much more do you and I see that day approaching than these Hebrew believers did? Now, they believed Jesus was, appearing, or was going to return soon in their lifetime. And we've known, I mean, how much sooner now? I mean, we, we look at it, things now and go, man, Jesus can come back any time now. There's nothing standing prophetically in the way before Jesus returns for his church. And so how much more, since you and I see the day approaching, how much more should you and I be seeking fellowship and considering one another in the body of Christ? What does considering one another look like? I mean, okay, I consider you. I've considered you. What, what does that mean to consider someone? Well, let's look at the definition. The definition means to perceive, remark, Observe, understand, to consider attentively, fix one's eyes or mind upon. That's what it literally means to consider. You know, you and I, we can become so self-absorbed in ourselves and our own problems that we fail to even think or notice others. Do you ever just kind of like dwell on people here? And I don't mean staring at them, you know. <laughs> but what I mean is, you know, do you ever perceive when someone in this fellowship is going through a tough time? Now, people have a people can be pretty good at masking, right? They can. You, they walk in, we get this the Sunday morning smile. Hey, brother. <laughs> you guys don't do that here. Hey, brother. But you know, there's people we we get that you know everything's fine and stuff, and yet. We know that we're all sinners. We know that we all fail. We know that we all struggle and stuff. We know that we all have tough times. Why don't we just be forget about the face? Because we all know that we're in the same boat together, right? But the thing is, do you ever kind of look at others and go, oh, well, something's, not, something's not right with that person? Or, you know, they, they look like they're discouraged or something. Do you take the time to consider one another? That's what we're supposed to do here. 
So what do you do? Well, talking with one another, that's one definite thing. Praying for one another. The Lord lays one of the brothers or sisters on your heart during the week. Just start praying for him. Give him a call. Find out how they're doing. And visiting one another. Being involved in one another's lives. Verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he has, was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, if you really want to clobber a fellow brother or sister who's struggling with sin in their lives, read them this scripture. I mean, it's like, you know, the Word of God is a sharp, two-edged sword. And sometimes believers can use it indiscriminately, and you can lop off an ear, just like Peter did in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, the sword, it's sharp, it is dangerous. And we have we can't just use it indiscriminately. And, and uh, you know... This passage of Scripture, if you use it indiscriminately, man, you could really do some damage to somebody. I called this section endurance versus drawing back. Well, what's what's the context? Because I think the context is important here. This letter was written to Hebrew believers. They had been, it was written about approximately about three years or so before the destruction of Jerusalem. So that the, the Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So, you know, 57 or excuse me, 67 AD roughly something like that. In any event, decades after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven for you know, a few decades anyways, this these believers were you know, following Jesus Christ. They were, they, were, they were meeting with other believers and everything. And because they were Jews, they were being uh, persecuted by their fellow Jews. Uh, they were probably, you know, uh, they were probably tempted to go back into Judaism, go back to that comfort that they knew, the way they grew up with the, with the sacrifices and all that stuff. They were, to some extent, considering a return to the sacrificial system of Judaism. They were tempted to give up on Christianity and return at least to some aspect of it. Well, the writer here is warning, this whole letter is about it, it's warning these Hebrew brothers and sisters, hey, if you attempt to return to the Old Covenant, there is no sacrifice for sins. The Old Covenant has been done away with, uh, and it's been replaced by the New Covenant. That's the context, I believe, that this is written. A person who rejects Christ's sacrifice for sin, they have trampled the Son of God underfoot. They've insulted the Spirit of grace. That's who this is written to. You know, some people want to prove, uh, want God to prove his love. You know, I don't think God loves me. God needs to show that he loves me. Well, think about this, especially if you're a father. There's nothing more a loving father could do to prove his love than to give his son as a sacrifice for your sin. I mean, what more could you ask God to do to prove that he loves you? I mean, he's given you the ultimate sacrifice. And that sacrifice 
of his son, I mean, what, what more can he offer? There is no other sacrifice for sin besides the cross of Christ. And so this passage, um, you know, I think the spirit of this passage is, I don't believe it's warning a believer who is struggling in sin that they're going to lose their salvation. Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not there to say, you know, if you just continue on the path you're going, everything's going to be fine. I'm, I wouldn't say that to a believer who's, who's, you know, practicing sin. But for you and I who are struggling from sin, this, this can be a very frightening passage of Scripture. But I think this is written to someone who no longer considers that Christ's sacrifice is all sufficient for their salvation. I think it's written for people that were returning to a works-based religion or openly rejecting Jesus Christ. And yeah, boy, you better watch out then, because there is no other sacrifice. And if you're going to reject Christ's sacrifice and the love that he poured out to you, there is wrath. That's, that's all that's left is wrath. Verse 32, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You know, these Hebrew believers, this is what the writer's trying to get across to them. When they had become Christians, whenever that had happened, you know, decades before or whenever, they had already endured persecution by their, from their fellow Jews. They had already publicly identified with whoever the writer of this letter is. I happen to think it's Paul, but we don't know. But whoever it was, he had, was in chains. He himself had gone to prison for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And so whoever he was, the, the, the readers had already publicly identified with him. They had already suffered the consequences of that decision. And he says, man, you've already suffered so much. Why go back to what you've been set free from? Why return to that stuff? When you've already, you've already made that clean break from that, why go back? Sometimes I see people that, you know, it's like they've been delivered from so many things, and then just to see them go back right into it, it's like, man, man, why are you going back? You've been delivered from that. Verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your conf- confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so, you know, while this is a, a stern warning to those who wanted to move away from Christ's sacrifice, the apostle, whoever he is, who's the writer of this letter, he loves these believers. Why do I know that? Well, because in 1 Corinthians, we're told that love believes all things and love hopes all things. And the writer here, man, he is hoping the best and believing the best in these believers. Even though they're wanting to go back into this Judaism, he's trying to encourage them to endure just a little bit longer because Jesus is returning soon. And think about this. If they needed to endure just a little longer because they believed Christ's return was imminent, how much more should you and I endure just a little bit longer, man? Just hang on a little bit longer 
because his return is that much sooner. So, you know, although this is a very stern warning to those who would reject and walk away from Christ's sacrifice for sin, and I tremble. I literally tremble when I hear somebody, they say, I, you know, I don't believe in Jesus Christ anymore, and they walk away from it. I shudder for them because there is no other sacrifice for them. God's given his love. He's, he's done everything he can. There's nothing more that he can do for him. The only thing that's left is wrath. That, that's a fearful thing. But for you and I, this is a stern warning. But for you and I, man, this should actually, even though it's a warning, this should make you and I go, man, I, I just want to approach the Lord that much more because I'm not under those old covenant. I'm not under those things. I can, I can freely go to the Lord. I can draw near, even as a sinner, even if I've blown it and I've failed it and I've been unfaithful, I can go back to the Lord. I can repent of my sins and, and He receives me. I can boldly enter the throne of grace. And so for you and I, this is a stern warning, but I hope for you and I it's also an encouragement. Man, there, there's nothing that I can do to earn God's love. There's nothing I can do to earn my own righteousness. So I just praise God that, that I am under that new covenant, that you are under that new covenant. Because apart from Christ, there is no sacrifice for sin. So let's you and I draw near all the more in full assurance of faith and endure just a little bit longer because Jesus is returning soon. Why don't you stand up and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words this morning. Lord, I thank you for that encouraging uh, letter that the apostle wrote to these Hebrew believers. And Father, I, I know that it's a, it's a, it's a fearful thing, Lord. The, the things that we've read here in this chapter about those who would reject your sacrifice, Father. And I thank you that we here have not rejected your sacrifice. Lord, I pray for those here who maybe are struggling. Maybe, maybe Lord, they have drawn back. They're not drawn back, but they've, they've drifted away from you, Lord God. And, Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit even now would be just calling them back to you, Lord Jesus. You love them. You died for them. You gave your life for them, Lord. And you want to you wanna transform them. Lord, you want to transform them from the inside out. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are maybe struggling with their walk this morning, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you still love us. That, Lord, our relationship with you is not based on on our faithfulness, Lord. It's based on what you did, your finished work on the cross. And, Father, when we, get a, when we grasp that, when we get a hold of that, Lord, it just causes us to want to love you more and to draw close to you and, and to worship you and to live our lives for you. And so, Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and my sisters here. I pray your blessing upon them this coming week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.